Hello and welcome along to another episode of the United Daily. It's Ben here on All for United. Thank you for joining me this lunchtime. I'm so thrilled to have the panel I have joining me for a chit-chatter today. Do you know how we like to do things here? Uh, we like to educate, we like to inform, but we like to reflect on not just the United now, but how we got there from yesteryear. And I'm really excited for today's show. You would have seen Roy Kavanagh. Uh, he, 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 he says, I have to mention the MBE. So Roy Kavanagh, <laughs> MBE, uh, <laughs> historian, is on the show. We've got John Gubber, who's always fantastic. And, and to be honest, John, we haven't done a show where we spoke reflected on the past really before. We We've already, already spoken about the current. You, you said to me you'd love to do one. So it's great Thank to have you. you on today. And uh, Tony, I don't know if you remember, but about six years ago, I think we last done a show together on a channel called The United View, talking about United and the Moo Jacks. And it was ages ago. So it's fantastic to be talking to you again, mate. And it's, it's fantastic to have you on this show because... You know, with, with the Real Sociedad game, I, I think it opened our eyes. Real Sociedad, a team a bit like United, who are enriched in history of using their homegrown players. And afterwards, there was a lot of uh, talk and chatter around the consecutive games. Over 80 years now, Manchester United have used homegrown academy talent in their matchday squads, which is remarkable. And we'll come to actual figure on games in, in just a moment's time. I'm sure someone will shout it out very loud. Um, but first of all, I want to come around to each of you, Roy. When I say Manchester United homegrown talent is is one of the things isn't it using our academy talent is one of the things that's enriched in our dna Mm. for you is there a manchester united without the 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 tradition within youth and our academy that we have to this 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 point in time no i've not seen it i mean my first game was uh youth game was 1954 55 um and of course the 50s was the busby babes uh, the 60s was Georgie Best and the, that team. The 70s, even though they, they didn't have much success in winning FA Youth Cups, they produced seven or eight top players, Sammy Matt, Jimmy Greenoff, uh, etc. The 80s was Norman and uh, Mark Hughes, Clayton Blackmore. Then the 90s was the, um, the class of 92. So, you know, um, and, then, and then, of course, even now, as Tony and John will explain, the number of games that had a youth team. And that was amazing on Thursday night when at any one stage you had um, Anderson, Williams, Tunisabi, uh, Shilo, Shilo, I can't pronounce him, Shloterry. Yeah, that's the one. Um, Hamid, who's obviously only just joined us, Rashford, Greenwood. May, I may have missed the odd. Oh, uh, no, Matt Tommy didn't play, did he? But, you know, they were all on the pitch at some stage or other. Absolutely incredible. I think, wasn't it, um, half of the outfield team at the end of the game was were academy graduates, which was just stunning. It's, mm. it's fantastic to see. John, for you, the, the love for this football club and the way we do things is, 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 is part of that power, how we use our own, how we blood in our own and, and how enriched that is within our DNA. Absolutely. As you said, I mean, it's very much part of our DNA. And for me, there isn't a Man United without having youth team players coming through and that's one of the things that excites me the most about Ollie's era, really, because he fully gets that. And uh, the one thing I get frustrated with, really, is the modern day fan just wants instant success and they don't seem to be patient with uh, young mm-hmm. players and they criticise them too easily. I mean, Marcus Rashford is still a young kid. I mean, uh, he's a great player and they, he can get better. Uh, but if he does something wrong, you've got social media and people on his back all the time. And I think I just like younger fans to be a little bit more patient and to be a little bit more aware of our history and to understand what it is to be a Manchester United player and also what it is to be a Manchester United fan. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%, 100%. And Tony, similar question to you. I know you are enriched in our history when it comes to um, when it comes to United Blood in the youth and, and how we've done it through the years. Um, for you, Tony, where we are today, how that DNA has, so to speak, grown, Manchester United using academy players, how that tradition has carried on as well. Let's face it, it would have been easy for someone like a Jose Mourinho or a Louis van Gaal or even at the point David Moyes. I mean, I know luckily enough Adnan Yanazai was in some sort of form at that, at that point, so he's always going to get in the team. It would have been easy for them to have gone, do you know what, especially with the Woodward model, as he said at the time, we're going to turn into this Galactico side. It had been easy for them to have gone, right, we don't need to use that player, we don't need to use that player. And, and so to speak, stumble over what all the managers beforehand have built when it comes to tradition. For, for you, is that how powerful this club is and, and how rich that, that DNA, as we've mentioned before, blooding in the youth, using the academy? I think so, Ben. And, and, and I think there's two, two aspects to look at it here. I think you're right by looking by saying, you know, look at the first team manager and what do they believe in youth? Do they not believe in youth? I think the other thing that we must always remember is we've had a great pedigree of having youth coaches who are really, really good at their job. So regardless of what's happening at first team level, you've got that undercurrent of coaching and the coaching staff. And, and, and in the 50s and 60s, you probably had a handful of people. Now you go down to Carrington, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 coaches. All of those people um, are working really hard behind the scenes to push these young kids forward. And I think that's the bit that's interesting for me just as much as the first team manager is how, how those people um, are are producing them, are coaching them, developing whatever words you want to use. And, and that's been um, part of our, our culture for just as long as the first team managers. In fact, probably even more. Some of those coaches going, going all the way back to the 30s and during the, during the Second World War. And um, I'd, I'd like to just recognise that, the likes of Jimmy Murphy and Eric Harrison and many, many others, to the modern-day stuff, the Paul McGuinnesses, the Tony Whelans, you know, the Colin Littles, you know, and, and a whole bunch of others I've not mentioned, um, you know, Jimmy Ryan and so forth. And those people, they're just as entrenched and, and steeped in the history as the Solskjaer's and the, the Tommy Doherty's and the, the Matt Busby's. Let's go back there, John, uh, Tony. I think you're the best person to talk about this. We know your name on Twitter, uh, Mr. Mujak, and, and I think this is the perfect question for you. You were talking then about the culture uh, and where it all started. Please, for anyone out there who's young, who's listening, Tom Clare said this before. A lot of people think that this tradition started with the babes, but it actually came before that. Give us an insight and a bit of information and a learning curve on where you believe the foundations were set for Manchester United to thrive when it comes to blooding in young players and, and utilising the academy. Well, uh, first of all, what, I, what I've discovered in, in the last year or so doing my research is that the first actual youth team was in 1902-03. The, the same time we changed our name from Newton Heath to Manchester United, we had a youth team in one of the junior leagues in the Manchester and District League. And upon doing that research, it was absolutely fascinating. Of course, you, you know, the, the, it was over 100 years ago. You don't have all the, the players' names or anything like that, but you've got the results in the newspapers. And I just thought that was really interesting. Why did that happen? And maybe we'll never know the the uh, ledgers at Old Trafford don't um, don't seem to have existed. The war, the war fires. So we don't know what happened there. All we know is we had a junior team in that league. But then when uh, Gibson took over in the early 30s, he was very keen to have a club that was based of Manchester players. And this has been written about many times how um, our chairman at the time, Mr. Gibson, wanted you know, local lads getting a chance. And at that time, very, very few clubs, if any, um, were able to support 
uh, a junior team. For example, uh, Preston and Burnley had some junior teams in their leagues, uh, in their local leagues. You might have had one or two in the south as well, but it wasn't it wasn't something that most clubs did for, for very obvious reasons. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the facilities to have uh, investing in training grounds around the local area. They didn't have the coaching staff. There was no infrastructure. But in, in the early 30s in Manchester, Gibson decided to, to invest in the infrastructure. So they had at the time uh, a first team, and then you had a, a reserve team, which was the Central League. And that Central League was pretty rough and tumble. You couldn't just take a a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid out of school and put them in the Central League. It just wouldn't have worked. They would have got kicked off the park. So what clubs tended to do was pick up players from non-league clubs. So a lad would leave school at 15, 16. He'd play for his local team. His local team uh, could be, you know, just a boys' club. But then someone like, if, if I'm using the example of in the Manchester area, a team such as Hyde United or Altrincham or one of those other bigger non-league clubs would have picked that young boy up played him for two or three years until he physically developed. And then the local professional clubs who were scouting would see that player, bring them forward and put them into the Central League team. But in the late 20s, early 30s, they had what they called a midweek league. And the midweek league was designed by, by mostly the northern clubs to try to use trialists and young players without putting the pressure on them of signing up as, as a full-time pro. So they're often signed as amateurs and given a run out. And then if they found they had any talent, they would progress. But even then, during those periods from, say, mid-20s to mid-30s, 1930s, the, the, the leagues were too – it was too hard. We were playing Burnley, where you had a bunch of lads in that Burnley team, for example, who were first-team players trying to come back from injury, who'd lost form, were trying to get back into the first team. You can imagine what the money was like during the 1930s. So these players were, were very keen and earning as much money as possible. So they – they didn't give the youngsters a chance. So what, what Gibson did was he said, there's a Manchester league where we're playing the likes of Denton, Altrincham Reserves, Glossop. So it wasn't the same, what's the right word, the same pressure on young boys, and it wasn't as physical. And then all of a sudden, these youngsters who were 17, 18, maybe, maybe a couple of years older as well, got the chance to get in there and find their rhythm and their form. And then what started to happen was we started to see this trickle effect. So the likes of Jackie Wassell, Tommy Manley, uh, Johnny Carey, one or two others would start out in the A-League, the A-team in the Manchester League, get their form, find out what it was like to, to build their strength against, you know, sometimes works teams who were pretty powerful. But for the most part, it was a balance of youth and experience. And that was a fantastic breeding ground to allow these young players to develop. And then what started to happen, I think, is as we started to get the trickle effect, and we got a lot of good coaches in that period as well, ex-players who were coaches, people like Ted Connor, who used to be a, a player at United, Jimmy McClelland, who was a player at United, these ex-pros would go into the coaching for the A-team as part of their coaching program, their coaching experience. And then all of a sudden, this trickle effect started to take shape. But what happened in terms of the real pinpoint was Walter Crickmer and Louis Rocker in about 1937, spoke to the chairman and they said, why can't we start this off in a completely different way? Why don't we start at schoolboy level? Why don't we get in touch with all the schoolmasters of all the schools, all the best schools in the local areas, and get the kids who are 14 and 15 just coming out of school and get them playing for Manchester United? Because if we can get those players breathing, living and, and, and thinking about Man United as as the club for them, 
Then we're going to have loyalty. We're going to have all the things that go with not just supporting a football team, but playing for your football team. It must be like players now in the foundation and the academy, you know, the young kids and they're, mm-hmm. they're putting on a Man United shirt. That feeling just must be, you know, so, so amazing. But going back to the 1930s, the depression, to do that back then must have just blown kids' minds away. I remember talking to um, Jack Smith, who was one of the original Moojacks in 1937, 38. And he said, you know, they didn't have money to go to games. They used to wait till three-quarter time and then nip in to see the last 20 minutes of the game. They couldn't afford a program. I even I remember saying to Jack, well, who was your favourite heroes at the time, Stanley Matthews or Wright Card? And he says, no. He says, we never even knew them. And I said, well, didn't you read about them in the paper? And he says, we couldn't afford newspapers. He said, my father had six or seven children. You know, the, what? even though there were newspapers around, obviously, we couldn't afford to buy newspapers. So we never read about all these famous players. The only famous player was Bill Mackay or, you know, Stan Pearson or Jack Rowley, who were already established in the first team at the at, at the outset of the Second World War. And it was an amazing thing, Ben, just to listen to him talk about what it must have been like as a young boy, a 15-year-old, to be playing for Manchester United. And I think that's when the tide turned. Because Walter Crickmer in that first season, they won the Chalton League, they got to the final of the Gilchrist Cup, they won the A-League Championship, the Central League team won the Central League. All of a sudden, that year, things turned and Walter Crickmer and, and the manager at the time had left a couple of seasons earlier, Scott Duncan. So Walter was basically looking after first team affairs as the secretary stroke manager. And I think Walter Crickmer was the catalyst. I think he suddenly realised, I'm onto something here. I've got something that can make a huge difference in our community, in, in the city, but also at our football club. And that is just an amazing epiphany, if you like, of where it all started for me. It's amazing, isn't it? Because as you mentioned there, um, you know, f- f- to really put this into context, you've got to think about the world everyone was living in back then as well in the 30s. As you mentioned, then the Great Depression, money wasn't around like it is, so to speak, now as well. I think he it, didn't he put, I was reading before the show doing some research, he put something like 20, 30 grand into the club. But that's all they could afford to do so at the time. Um, and didn't the previous owner before that die or something in his in his first four to five years owning the club and then as you said he had some fantastic managers and Roy it, it comes on perfectly to um to Matt Busby who was obviously who who obviously took over um in the late uh was it late full 45 40s yeah 45 um and and the babes and and it carried on the tradition of bringing youth players through um th- th- let's carry on the, the, the tradition continued didn't it yeah, I mean, obviously Tony's uh, laid a very good script out there, and it's it's so so interesting and so true. Um, the first year after the war, 1946 season, when United came second, I'm pretty sure the reserves won the Central League, and um, allegedly Matt said to Jimmy Murphy, "Well, you know, who we got in the reserves that can come into the first team?" <laughs> about having articles ready because we. Someone's got the show open. Oh, there we go. I think it's been put. There you go. Sorry, carry on, Roy. Okay. And uh, Matt allegedly asked Jimmy um, who we got in the reserves that have just won the Central League that could come into the first team. And Jimmy said, well, there's nobody because they're all 26, 27. Don't forget they'd missed six or seven years of their lives with the war and they weren't going to improve anymore. And I really think one of the big moments after what Tony's talked about was the start of the FA Youth Cup in 1952-53. And that was perfect because in the the time between, say, 50 and 52, Busby Murphy and all the others 
uh, Bert Wally. They'd really researched around the country and they brought all these young lads through uh, for that youth team and started in 1952-53. I think what's really interesting is the very first FA Youth Cup game was against Leeds United. And one of the goal scorers for United was a, a guy called Charlton. And it wasn't Bobby Charlton, it was his brother Jack, who scored an own goal for, for Leeds in that match. Um, and then United won the FA Youth Cup five years on the bounce and probably would have won it six years, but for the Munich air disaster because they were again in the semi-final when they crash up. But going back, the first time I actually went to a youth team game, I, I seriously, can you still remember it? It was against Plymouth Argyle. It was in March 1955. And the game kicked off at 11 o'clock in the morning with the reserves kicking off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And in that United side was Eddie Coleman, Duncan Edwards, Wilf McGuinness, Shay Brennan and Bobby Charlton. Um, now, Duncan Edwards played in that match at number five. He was centre-half. Three weeks after that game, he made his England debut against Scotland. That shows how incredible uh, Busby thought about the youth team. And again, around that time, a lot of clubs actually were complaining that Matt shouldn't be playing the likes of Duncan Edwards in his youth team because, hey, he'd just been picked for England at 17. Uh, but Matt quite rightly did play them. And I don't know what the other guys think, but like last season, we got to the semi-final and we didn't play Greenwood in the semi-final against Chelsea. Well, we could have done. I mean, he's, in, he's eligible to play. He's only eligible to play for about two, three years at the most. Um, and I think the Youth Cup is very, very important. But that game with um, Plymouth United won 9-0, uh, won the Cup again. The following season, around the same time, March, we played a team called Bexley Heath. And Bexley Heath were actually the academy side of Charlton Athletic. By this time, people wanted to see that youth team. And so what they did, they switched the youth game to the Saturday afternoon. And the youths kicked off, at, the reserves kicked off at 11 o'clock on that Saturday morning. This time, there was 23,000 watching the game against Bexley Heath. United won comfortably 11-1. Bobby Charlton got five goals and it put them into the semi-final and the final uh, that season uh, was against Chesterfield. Now Bobby Charlton obviously played in that side and in the Chesterfield goal uh, 1956 was uh, Gordon Banks and incredibly 10 years after of course 1966 Charlton and Banks played in the England side that won the World Cup. <laughs> so, some great great memories from my, my era you know, watching the team with Duncan in, Coleman, Wilf, um, Bobby, Albert Scanlon, Shay Brennan, all players like that. Uh, and then later on, you know, Nobby came in, Johnny Giles, Alex Dawson, who was an awesome goal scorer, awesome. Uh, Mark Pearson, who was a beautiful inside leg. Um, and of course, they were deprived probably of winning it in 58 because the crash happened. And of that youth team, Gaskell, Dawson and Pearson, certainly Dawson and Pearson, were playing regularly in the first team after the crash. Um, yeah. So they, they couldn't play in the, in the semi-final and they got beat by Wolves. 
Yeah, I mean, we we spoke there a little bit about about Roy spoke there a bit about the team, John, and spoke there a little bit about um Sir Matt and and how the legacy continued. Tony mentioned in there that that the thirties and Gibson, but I think one name that we do have to hit on, and I know you've done many programs on this man, is Jimmy Murphy, um and and the role he played, and and how much the younger players loved him, and 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 especially after the disaster, how he managed to pick the club up using quite a few young players, but also giving them the confidence too to continue playing under such hard circumstances. How how, how big an influence is, is Jimmy Murphy when it comes to moulding that DNA now we have, John? Absolutely, yeah. I'd like to say first, I'm totally in awe of both uh, Roy and Tony. Uh, <laughs> superhuman. I mean, I, I'm sitting here like a fan. I mean, I'm, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm gonna, first thing I'm going to do when we finish this show is watch it back because I'm learning so much and there's no way I can compete with these guys for knowledge about the old days. And it is absolutely fascinating. And uh, it's great that you've got a platform like this because there's no other way you can find out this information from the spoken word. And uh, you're doing a great service by having this uh, this 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 the stronger programs that you're doing. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But I've got to know more about Jimmy Murphy uh, as a program maker, as a filmmaker, and I've got quite close to the the Murphy family. I know you've had Paul Murphy on the show before. He's a very good friend of mine, and I know his uh, twin brother, Stephen, and Michael, and uh, his father, Nick. And uh, I've got to know about Jimmy Murphy through making films. I mean, I, I did a lot of interviews for the Jimmy Murphy film that was put out on MUTV, and... Uh, what was fascinating what's fascinating is every time you talk to somebody who remembers Jimmy Murphy or played for Jimmy Murphy or played it in a team against Jimmy Murphy was the character of Jimmy Murphy how he was very it was almost like he was running a separate team within Manchester United running the youth team and he was the king of the youth team and uh, all the players that went through to the the first team and he obviously he was he was some that's right-hand man with the first team but he had this unique role really and uh, Everybody was in awe of him because he was like this sergeant major, and that's how obviously how Matt Busby, uh, Matt Busby often said that he was he probably his best ever signing was Jimmy Murphy because he saw him uh, when he was in the army uh, and how he he used to co sort of command young people and he, he had the respect of young people. But uh, you know everybody from Bobby Charlton and Duncan. I mean I don't remember Duncan Edwards of course because he was killed in the crash the, the year before I was born. But uh, I know about Duncan Edwards and uh, being the director of Duncan Edwards Foundation. And I think going back to something that uh, Roy mentioned a little while ago uh, about how these players used to play for the first team, but they also used to play for the youth team. And uh, I think that's something that's missing today. I just wanted to quickly mention mm -hmm. that as I remembered it. But yeah, I mean Jimmy Murphy. I mean, he was he, he was such a unique guy in the history of Manchester United. And uh, we don't have a figure like Jimmy Murphy. We, we, we're not had a figure like Jimmy Murphy since we had Jimmy Murphy. And uh, he was very, he was very much uh, taken for granted. And, uh, you know, like I, I'm kind of like harking on about the Jimmy Murphy campaign, which I kind of got involved with. And uh, I think it's all part of this learning curve for younger fans. I mean, I'm I'm old, but I've got a young a young head on me and I'm. I'm more knowledgeable about things that have happened since I started watching. I'm not really a historian in the, in the way that Roy and Tony are because they've studied this to, to immense detail. But the thing about Jimmy Murphy is all the players look, look up to him. And uh, they it was kind of a unique training ground for the first team because, because of Jimmy Murphy, the character that he was. He was, he was like a, a second father to most of the players. And uh, he was very strict. And uh, he put the fear of God up players. And that's the, but at the same time, he, he, I kind of think that he, 
So Alex Ferguson was possibly a, a similar sort of personality in that he frightened the death out of players, but they all looked up to him and respected him like a, like a father figure. And for me, that's the impression I've always had of Jimmy Murphy. And the more that I've got to know about him through the family and the people that I've interviewed. I remember interviewing uh, Cliff Jones, who played in the double mm. Spurs. And uh, he was talking about uh, Jimmy Murphy. Obviously, he was, his, he was his national team manager. And... Uh, he was saying that about when Jimmy Murphy told you what to do. <laughs> you didn't, uh, you took, you took, you, you did ex exactly what you said. And uh, they all lived in fear of him, but they all respected him and loved him. That was the thing, really. It was a sort of love for Jimmy Murphy. It wasn't just a fear of Jimmy Murphy. But one of the things that Cliff, Cliff uh, Jones talked about was he played in an army team. And in that army team was Cliff Jones, striker, double winner, Welsh, Welsh hero for his national team, Bobby Charlton. Duncan Edwards and Eddie Coleman. That was an army team. I mean, he said, what a fantastic team that was. And uh, it's just like, I absolutely find it fascinating to hear these stories from these older guys and to hear about these people. And it kind of brings them to life. And that's what I'm hoping. You know, as you know, I'm making a film or trying to make a documentary series. It's going to be called We Will Never Die. And Jimmy Murphy is very much a central character in that. So I'm finding out as I go along. And uh, two men I need to interview for this film, I think, is going to be Tony and uh, yeah, because they know so much and they can bring bring this era to life which is what 100%. and that stuff now as you say it never it never disappears if, if as soon as you get it online that's it you're informing the next generation and the generation after that and that's really really important we keep mentioning the word dna and and you mentioned there we'll never die and these are the foundations and the reason on why we will never die because of how we approach it and how our club is structured and those who have laid down those foundations beforehand and it's extremely important for people to learn that well john quickly then let, let's hit on i, I want to come back and talk more about the base want to talk more as well uh, with tony uh, uh, about a little bit earlier on as well and, and i want to get onto the class of 92 as well which is a you know slightly more current than some of the players today coming through the academy um but what about the 70s and 80s i know we're looking at two decades there john and potentially a load of players that could be mentioned um but for you the 70s and 80s how how did we embed the, the youth then do you remember any any oh. potential standout moments where you saw exciting young players and and so to speak the club evolutionized during those 20 years my own personal memories, my own personal memories of the seventies and eighties is more a case of the fact that you used to go to youth team games and reserve team games to collect the tokens. And what was outstanding was you get to these games and there'd be like these massive crowds, you know, bigger crowds than you'd see at other other first team games, and it was fantastic. There would be a lot of people that just turn up, get the program, and go. But I'd always stay, and uh, I don't remember so much specific games because you're only really sort of storing your memory bank more the first team games. But I remember. Uh, I remember you see Arthur Alberson on the bus <laughs> and it was a different era because you were more closer to the players. So you, you'd see a, you'd see a guy playing at Old Trafford the next minute you see him on the bus or you see him in the pub. And uh, that was one of the things that stood out for me. I mean, I remember more the eighties in Norman Whiteside and Mark Hughes uh, coming through the youth team. Cause I thought they're going to be outstanding players. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously Norman didn't play for the, the youth team that long because he was on he was straight into the into the first team and he was playing for the worst first team and he was 17. I think it was Ahmad Diallo beat his record didn't he last week and showed showed a Shoratiri wasn't it showed a Shoratiri broke his record and he was only 17 years and was it 23 days mm. uh but I remember Norman Whiteside I thinking crikey he's a fantastic player I mean he's, he basically was a man when he was a boy a bit like Wayne Rooney and uh that was kind of a uh, a memory there. I mean, my boyhood hero was Georgie Best. So even though I don't really, re I don't remember him playing for the youth team. I was always aware of the fact that he come through the youth team, and uh, George was very much my hero. So uh, that was my memory, really, of uh, following his progress. Thinking, crikey, uh, yeah, we've got some good players here. <laughs> 
Only a few. Uh, here we go, guys. I'll test you here then. How old was Norman Whiteside when he made his European debut? Can anyone remember the exact, uh, the exact age? So that would have been September 81, uh, September 82 against Valencia. He would have made his debut. Um, so he was born in May, May 65. So do the math. He would have been 18, 18 younger, months, yeah, 17, younger, younger. 17, months, 17, four months. More or less 17 on one month. So he was 17 yeah. years old and 23 days when he made his European debut for Manchester United. Yeah. And sure, Terry, I think was 21 <laughs> days. So 17 and 21 days. So beat it by a couple of days, I think, if that's right. But, but Norman um, never looked 17. I mean, he, he <laughs> was sure, Terry looked 60. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, you know, he's just physical. Once he put a bloody good player in. And a top bloke as well. Yeah, and he, he he actually celebrated the fact that his record got broken on, on Twitter as well. I don't know if you saw, he, he messaged, um, he put a message out to Shuratiri saying someone had to do it someday. Well done, kid. And I think that was really, really nice that actually Norman got to see his record be broken as well. I think that must, must be quite nice. For, although maybe as a footballer, because of how competitive are you like now, yeah. I want to keep that. I don't, I don't want that to go anywhere. Who knows? Norm, um, Norman's still got plenty of records. He's, he's, he's Yes. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, yeah the World, World Cup. Yeah. Youngest goal scorer, youngest, <laughs> youngest that, youngest player yeah. in the final. He's, he's got plenty of records. If I'm going to let one go, I'll let that one go. He's probably yeah. thinking that. I hope watching the game. Ben, ben, can you just can you just go back to one point John made? And God, I'm sure Tony's heard the same story. Um, but I got to know Harold Bratt very well. Now, not many will know Harold Bratt. He only played one game for United, and that was against Bradford City in the League Cup in about 1960. But Harold actually was in the reserve team the Saturday before the air crash. Um, and, and he was a bloody good left half with Harold. And he told me a lovely story about Jimmy. Um, and they played Uddersfield Town. Remember, United didn't lose a game for about four years in the FA Youth Cup. And they were playing away at Huddersfield uh, on a wet and windy day. And they were going over the moors in the coach. He said, and suddenly Jimmy came down the coach to talk to me. And I thought, whoops, it's a bit funny. He said, look, he said, they've got an inside right. He said, he's wearing National Health Service glasses and he's got a plaster over one of side. He's about six stone, but do not let him out of his sight. And Harold's thinking, this, and he gets on the pitch and there's this young inside right in a Huddersfield Town shirt with his spectacles on and a plaster over one eye. Anyhow, United are 2 0 down, and Harold's looking across, looking at the, the dugout was on the, the other side, and he's thinking, Oh, no, this guy's running riot here. And United got a goal back just on our time. We go in the dressing room, and Harold's thinking, Oh, no. So, but Jimmy just said, Look, I'm not even going to talk to you. He said, The first one of you that's nearest to that inside right in the second half, you put him out of the game. And he said, Mark Pearson stood on his foot in about the second minute. And Dennis, and it was Dennis Law, of course, limped away. And United finished up winning 4-2. But I mean, Jimmy's attention to detail and everything John said about him. Here is a man who went in the pub with the locals, had a fag, had a pint, and, you know, was, well, indescribable. <laughs> Some man from all the stories. Tony, do you want to chip in on Jimmy? Just to follow on that, Roy, my understanding was Jimmy then went to Matt Busby and said, you've got to sign this kid. And yeah. Matt Busby actually went put a bid in for Dennis Law before Dennis was 18 years old. But Bill Shankly, who's the manager, said no chance. £10,000 he offered after the game. £10,000. And, of course, uh, Dennis then went to um, City 
United couldn't afford him when he went to Sheffield. It was just after Munich. We didn't have the money. We just bought Albert Quicksall, forty-five thousand, and and we, you know, we got that I think from Louis Edwards. He went to City, and then he went to Torino, and we couldn't afford him then. But when we did sign him, um, Matt Busby had actually managed him before we signed him, and uh, because Matt was the Scotland manager. I'm not 100% had this guaranteed, but United played Everton in 1958 at Goodison on a Saturday afternoon. And Dennis made his debut for, for Scotland. But Matt Busby was the Scotland manager and Jimmy Murphy was the Wales manager on that day. So God knows who was managing the United team when they played at Everton uh, that afternoon. Um, but, uh, well, we're talking of legends here, Dennis Law, Matt Busby. And Jimmy Murphy is way, way, way up there. He's not looking down to them. He's way up there. Yeah, it's, 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 we've done a, obviously a whole program on Jimmy Murphy. He mm. just comes across like a phenomenal man who needs to get that recognition he deserves at Old Trafford. Shout out to Patrick and the Manchester Munich Memorial Foundation and the board and the panel there who are doing everything they can uh, to make sure, and I think the club are as well to their credit, to make sure that the right kind of tribute is actually happening at Old Trafford for uh, Jimmy Murphy. Uh, Tony, let me come over to you quickly. And I want to really um, just just hit on the class of 92 ever, ever so quickly. And, uh, and and we'll go around the panel on this one. Obviously, for the, for the young generation of fans uh straight away names that would come to mind would be the beckhams the gigs the skulls uh the nevilles and 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 you know the, the treble winning sides you, you can just keep this in them and keep this in them um but 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 for you you know um the 90s and, and united um obviously w when it comes to it that those are always going to be the players that are mentioned are there any other players that potentially don't get the limelight um for you from 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 that era and and also you know from from the moment that sir alex ferguson took over just seemed like the perfect combination between club and manager to again carry on that tradition yeah i think so I, what what's really interesting with the class of 92 is and it's weird it's a really weird one the one player who was the standout player in that team apart from ryan giggs and you got to remember ryan giggs had already played a couple of seasons in the first team before the 92 fa youth cup final against crystal palace so he had played part of 1991 91 92 so he he, he was an established first team player the player that was the real standout in that team was Nicky Butt. And he was by far and wide the the one that Alex Ferguson thought, I don't need Paul Ince. I've got Nicky Butt coming through. The, the the David Beckhams, I mean, David couldn't even get in that youth team in 1991-92. Robbie Savage was ahead of him for most Didn't of the... did he go on loan, Tony? He went on loan, didn't he, for a season? Yeah, he went on loan to... 93-94, he went on loan to Preston North End. David Beckham was a was an... We all know how good David Beckham was, so I'm not I'm not disrailing David Beckham in any way. What I'm saying is at that moment in time, Nicky Butt was the standout. He was running the show in all those games. He was a man playing a boys' game. And um, I remember going to those early Youth Cup games in the early 90s. Adrian Doherty is another one who unfortunately was injured. He was, he was almost like the equivalent of Giggs on the other wing. So you had Giggs on one wing and Adrian Doherty on the other. And... Um, Oliver Kay's written a very good book about Adrian Doherty that I'd recommend to anybody to have a read of, which is um, going into all the history of Adrian's career and, and what happened um, in his life. Um, and Forever Young is the book called, and I recommend that. But, you know, you had Doherty on one side and you had Giggs on the other, and they were just, you know, unbelievable. But Nicky Buck came through and I just thought, you know, here is, here is a lad who, and people, he, he, I think even today he's a very underrated midfielder in our history. He doesn't get the recognition I think he deserves. He, he was a, a cracking player. 
Um, and of course, Paul Scholes couldn't get into that 92 team either. He he was smaller than the rest of the lads. He was suffering from asthma at the time. So he came through really the season after. And then obviously Phil Neville was 1995. But they all get grouped together because, you know, they had that camaraderie. That, and in anything, I, I think what happened, people often say, um, you know, United have, have had the class of 92. That'll never happen again. And I disagree with that fundamentally. I think you actually analyse our history, we've had groups of kids come through virtually every decade. So, you know, there were seven or eight of them in the 40s. You had the Busby Babes in the 50s. In the 60s, you know, in terms of just the 1968 team, you had, you know, um, Nobby Styles. you had George Best, Francis Burns, Brian Kidd, David Sadler, uh, Steve James. You know, you had six or seven or eight Carlo Sartori, you had so many players all in that team at the same time. Um, then in the 70s, you know, you've got the McElroys, the McCreary's, the Greenoffs, the Nichols, the Orbistons, the, the Andy Ritchies. There's another seven players. So when people say the class of 92, yes, they were exceptional. I think what made them exceptional was they, they actually grew up together like the babes. All the other groups, they were slightly different in age. So there was a degree of, you know, they had their own pals in a different team. Um, the 80s was pretty close. You had the Blackmores, the Whitesides, the Billy Gartons, Graham Hogg, McGarvey, Alan Davies, the, Mickey Duxbury. They were all pretty tight as well because they'd come through the same the same years. I think what made the class of 92 special was that just that friendship that they had. And, and it was really interesting for me. And this I don't know how often this gets talked about because the first team was so good back in 94. I think a lot of people would suggest that. Our team in 1993-4 was one of the, you know, the double winning team, was probably the best team that we ever had um, mm. in the Ferguson era. There's a lot of people who will argue that. And I understand why it had everything, pace, power, you know, et cetera, et cetera, skill, whatever. But I think those boys, because they were made to wait a little bit, that made them really hungry, but they were hungry together. So all of a sudden you had this momentum being built behind the scenes. So when they got there, they didn't want to lose their spot. As a group, they didn't want to lose their spot. So all of a sudden, you had this, this traction and momentum that was just very unique since the Busby Babes, even though we'd continually developed decade upon decade upon decade, loads of kids coming through the system and reaching the first team. It didn't happen in the same way. It was more of an integrated process, whereas the 50s and the, well, probably the 40s as well, but no one talks about the 40s, but the 50s and the 90s, it was it was almost like, there was this wait and wait. I mean, Roy will know this as well. Bobby Charlton was so frustrated after playing yeah, yeah. reserve team games. Why am, why am yeah. I not in the first team? Why yeah. am I not? And they develop yeah. hunger. And I think that hunger is the differentiating factor between groups of players and individual players coming through. So, yeah. you know, to answer your question directly, Ben, I think the one player that even though he made it and is and he's highly recognised um, would be Nicky Butt. He, he was just by far in advance of everybody else in 92. I also think some of the work Nicky Butt is doing right now with, with the youth academies yeah. and the youth sides yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. It, it, I, I think I personally don't think it'd be too long that if we do go down that director of football route, I think the, the, the there's a name at the club already who could be perfect for that role. And and I think he's showing it by the way that he is developing the academies and the way he's playing. And the only thing that may hold that back is because it looks like he loves being out on that training pitch as well. So maybe that's for something for him to go in his head. John, let me come over to you quickly. Again, on the 90s for you, the, the class of 92, any fond memories, anything that you want to hit on that Tony hasn't hit on? 
That was a, as I say, I, I kind of forget I'm on the panel at some points because it's so fascinating, you've got so much knowledge. But one player I'd like to mention who never made it really was Ben Thornley because there was a time when uh, Nobby Styles was asked who was the best player in the youth team. And uh, he had obviously he had Giggs and he had Scholes and he had Beckham and he had uh, Nicky Butt. But he said uh, Ben Thornley. And Ben Thornley, uh, I've seen footage of him and he, he looked like Ryan Giggs. <laughs> And uh, he was a fabulous football player at that age. And uh, it was such a tragedy that he had, had that bad injury. And uh, he obviously had a, he's got his book out, which you can read about it. And uh, I just think Ben Ben is a, is a fantastic character. And uh, and uh, he, he sort of gives you a good insight. I mean, I know Ben quite well, so he gives you a good insight into what it was like in the class of 92. And also Chris Casper, whose father played for uh, Burnley. I remember his dad playing for Burnley. And Chris Casper was another good young player. And uh, we've, we, a lot of fans don't know about these guys being in the class of 92. They know all the, the star names that we talk about all the time. Uh, I'd also like to mention Nicky Butt and what you've all already mentioned, that the, fact, the role that he's playing at the moment. I think it's fantastic that we've got this continuity uh, and we've got Nicky Butt with such a, a pivotal role with the youth team. I think that's fantastic. And that's one of the things that impresses me really with uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, how he, he's seen that. And uh, he's got all the right people around him. And, you know, again, as Tony said, uh, when people say we'll never have another class of '92, and we'll never have that amount of players together, I think I think he's right when he says we will. I mean, I think we've got it at the moment in in, in, in all possibility. Obviously, it's about being patient, and uh, that's one of the things that Tony mentioned as well about being patient and get, giving them the hunger. And fans are so impatient these days. I mean, Mason Greenwood had a fantastic season last year, and then fans expect him to be playing every week this this season but that's not the way it goes and Fergie was always great at that he was always good at protecting the players and if you have to look at Michael Owen at Liverpool I mean Michael Owen would have had a much better career in my mind if he hadn't been burnt out by Liverpool by them being too impatient so I think it's important that fans are more patient with players and let them develop and uh, trust trust the managers trust the manager to to, uh, to get it right because they're working with these guys every day and it's not all about we live in a world now we want instant success and uh, that's one of my biggest bugbears that people have no patience and you've got to think about the long term. And that it's not just Ollie, of course, he's got this whole team around him. And I think you have to give a little bit of credit really to the, to, to the management. Really, I know it's always very popular to criticise the owners and criticise the management. But, you know, maybe it's for financial reasons. They think let's let's concentrate on the young players. But I think it's I don't think it is that I think they've actually I think they actually get it. And I think people forget about Louis van Gaal because Louis van Gaal's role was to develop the young players. I mean, Louis van Gaal still got the youngest team that ever won the European Cup, Champions League as it is now, his Ajax team. If you look at that Ajax team, it's like a who's who of football. And his job really was to do what he did for Ajax in Manchester United. But then there was a worrying moment where United panicked when Pep Guardiola went to City and United thought we'd better get Jose Mourinho. And that for me was a disaster because we did a complete U-turn. We went from developing the young kids to all of a sudden we've got a manager who wasn't really interested in the long-term success of Manchester United. It was all about what's going to go on his CV. He wants, he wants instant players who are ready now, disposable players almost, that we can have a team that's going to win us a trophy this season and uh, not think about the future. So I think that's what makes the United job so, so much more difficult than people realise. It's not just about being successful at the moment. It's about building for the long-term. And I think yeah. with the structure that Oli's got around him at the moment, I think mm -hmm. we're going to that direction. I think that's an important thing, really. 
I think you're also seeing, and and I don't like you know comparing managers or setups because all managers need to come into the club and have their own setup. But I think I, I really liked my era. Obviously, is is watching the way Warren Joyce and Sir Alex managed to work mm-hmm. together to bring through those players and and make sure that timing was right. And I think we'd always see with with Warren, he'd always have a former United player as his number two in the reserve team as well. And I think that's a really nice way as well to get that next generation of coaches. Of course, Ollie famously was was uh was part of the yeah. reserve setup and um and the united coaching setup for a couple of years after he he retired um and even in the latter stages of of his career as well so alex said that he would just stand and watch and listen for a lot of the training sessions and really take everything in um i like now looking at the way ollie is potentially working with nicky butt and, and and those around him as well um to make sure that that setup is is correct and it helps those young players i think as you say that's that's really key and important and well i say this all the time with the ones who question whether Maguire should be captain whether van der beek should be playing like all these 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 questions and talking points that people like to have no one knows the players and the team and the camaraderie better than the manager so at the end of the day, who are we to question who the right person's captain Manchester United is, who whether Van der Beek should be playing or not? Of course, we can have an opinion on it. Of course, we can. But at the end of the day, we've got to trust the manager because the manager sees them train. He sees them off the pitch and he spends nearly 12 hours of his 24 hour a day around those players and within that atmosphere of the club. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think Tony mentioned it earlier on. You've got to have trust in the manager. Roy, just ever so briefly, I want to give you a chance to talk about about under Sir Alex Ferguson and, and, and the 90s. Any youth games stand out? I know you regularly went to youth games. Any any moments stand out for you and, and, and players within within the last 20 years or so? Yeah, well, there was one player in that team that won the Youth Cup in the in the early nineties, who always always impressed me, and very very few people will remember him. He was a left back called George Schweitzer, and he was a really terrific left back. I'd been brought up with uh, Roger Byrne, uh, you know, Tony Dunn, Gary Serwin, and uh, people such as that, Arthur Alberston. Uh, but this guy at left back was absolutely outstanding. And in some of the games, in my opinion, he was as good a man at the match as the one who got it. Um, but I remember a, a Saturday afternoon, they played Tottenham uh, and beat them 3-0. And, and we pulled Giggs back into the youth team. And they played him. I think they played him more of a centre forward. Saul Campbell played for Spurs that day. And Nicky Barnby played for Spurs. And they were really highly rated. United won 3-0 that day and uh, you could just see that here was a really, really top top side. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to make a point John's made very eloquently. You know, today, mm-hmm. the younger fans and everything, we've got to win, we've got to win. Just realise that today, there are four leagues in England. There's the Premier League, the Championship, Division 1 and Division 2, which to all buggers like me is still the first, second, third and fourth division. It's four mm-hmm. divisions. Is 92 clubs, and today Manchester United are clear as second. Now, you know, everyone thinks we've got problems. The second of the 92 clubs, they're in the quarter final of the FA Cup, they're in the last 16 of the Europa League, and they reach the semi final of the League Cup or whatever. And obviously, you want them to win cups for semi finals. I understand that, but hey. Just imagine you being a, a, a fan of one of the other sides. We're second of 92. And we've got young players coming through. Incredible. Watching the, the young side the other week when um, Choletier and Ami played against Liverpool and, and they won. Uh, and uh, there was another game. Uh, uh, Blackburn 
He came back from about 4-2 behind and won 6-4. Absolutely exhilarating to watch. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll be okay. Can I also just give a shout out? And Antonio, I was going to come to you on this, but we, we don't have much time. I want to come around with a couple more rounds of questions, if that's okay with you guys. So we, we, we do briefly on the next couple ones, but also a shout out to um to uh, Finley McAllister, who became the youngest ever player to play for the under 18s the other night. 14 years old and seven months uh, wow. made his debut for the under 18s, which is, did he look like an under 18, Tony? <laughs> I don't know if it's me getting older or them getting younger, but they're looking less and less like like eighteen every single day. I mean, good luck to the lad. Um, I, I, you know, it was we've we've got lots of injuries, and 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 this is how people get their chances. You, you know, Marcus got his chance through an injury. You know, yeah. Dalton got his chance through an injury. Mm-hmm. You know, all these all these kids they get their chances through injuries most of the time, and um, you know, good luck to him. I think what I saw you, I think you retweeted this as well. What's great about Finney McAllister is he, he doesn't just hold a record for being the youngest player for the under 18s. He also holds a record for being the youngest player to play at under 16 level as well at 13 years old and four months. <laughs> so there's one to watch potentially for the future because clearly the club highly rate him to give him those accolades. I mean, and as you say, give him a chance to take it. Let's not put too much pressure. He's probably got A no. levels or O levels to yeah. still get his out the way. <laughs> <laughs> before, we start, before we start giving him too much, too much stuff to worry about. So what we're saying, what we're saying is Champions League football next year. Finley McAllister to make his <laughs> debut. Um, let's uh, let's uh, move on quickly. And look, Tony, if, if my maths are right, um, four thousand and seventy-seven games is it now? Just over eighty years it's, it, having an academy graduate involved in the match day squad absolutely phenomenal of which we've seen times when the full 11 to half the 11 to the subs bench being packed with academy talent um right. for yeah. you what what's the difference and, and again i know this 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 could be a long conversation but if we, we're trying to make these answers brief to this one because i want to come around in a minute and do a round on the most exciting a play you remember watching who's the most exciting uh from the man united youth academy over over your time over your years um I just want to ask, what do you feel is so different now compared to back in the the thirties, the forties, and the fifties to to these young players coming through? What, what what's the difference in the in the youth team setup and and also in youth team football? Because obviously the old first division way back then was known for being so much more physical, you know, so much more tough, so much more rough and rugged. For you, is 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 there a major? What are the major differences now for young players coming through? Um, God, that's a great question. What's the major difference? I think I think some of the difference is the physicality. I think in the in the the days even going back to the old Central League in the the late eighties, early nineties, you were up against men, so you were playing against men playing men's football, and that gave you a certain degree of savviness, if you like. And I think sometimes a lot of the youth players coming into the the first team, it takes time for them to build that savviness on the pitch. Uh, the game is less physical as well, so that's helped. That helps them to some extent. So I think that's some of some of the some of the difficulties mm-hmm. and the differences. I think the other difference is, as, as I just mentioned, Finley McAllister is 13, 14 years old, and his name's in the paper, and 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 you've got the whole pressure of social media and the pressure of the press. Who and that never happened. You know, you you know, Roy mentioned you know seeing Arthur Orbison on a bus. There's stories of Duncan Edwards getting to Old Trafford on his bike. You know, players were just were, were, they weren't anonymous, but they were left alone. They were able to just develop. I think there's a lot of pressure on children these days. And I, was, I remember talking to Paul McGuinness, the, the ex-United youth coach, saying to me a little while back, there's also premature professionalism in the game, 
where they're coming through an academy and the pressure starts from a very young age and we expect them to be professionals at 7 and 10 and 15 and forget that they're children and that they have to learn how to play and be and make mistakes and and have fun with their friends and play other sports and find their way and i sometimes think that we put way too much for them anyway i think they must feel a lot of pressure in today's environment to come through the academy and at least i hope it united the infrastructure there which i hope it does and i think it does takes the pressure off the kids and allows them to evolve and to progress in a developmental way rather rather than a results based i mean i know results are important but you know certainly at junior levels they they try to take that pressure off children, which I think is really important. And I think that's a major difference, the physicality and the and the emotional pressure. Yeah, so same question to you, Roy. Well, yeah, those are the two points, physicality and social media. Uh, those are the main difference. I mean, in the 50s, um, you know, they got on the bus, Tony mentioned it there uh, with um, Arthur Alberston. You know, they walk, they walk with the players, they walk with the fans after the game. There were local people. Social media is the big, biggest scenario now because, like I've just said before, Manchester United is second <laughs> out of 92 clubs. And if you looked on social media, um, you know, we, we looked as though we're a rubbish side. And it's just not true. And uh, that's, that's a problem. Social media, but the physicality, as Tony uh, uh, said as well. Can, can, I, can I jump in there, Roy? I've actually got a bit of an opinion on this um, because, obviously, you know, social media sort sort of my thing. I understand that social media gets a lot of, of hate because of the way that it drives um, negativity sometimes or the way it does drive pressure. I completely agree with you. I think you're spot on with that. But I think the biggest factor to all this is, um, and, and I'm going to say it, video games. Because everyone now that they play a realistic video game think that they're a football manager. <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. And so and they think that they 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 know the tactical book, they know how to be a football manager. And I yeah. personally think that it's video games because and, and I'll come back to it. So my nephew's 13 years old, he's an Arsenal fan, he's my least favourite nephew. Um, but he'll watch this by the way. Um, but he will have a conversation with me now about the way Arsenal set up tactically that even me, uh, what would it be now, 13 years ago. I wouldn't have been able to have that conversation and use the terminology that he uses. And 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 when he speaks to me like that, I just turn around and look at him and go, that's bullshit. If you win a game 1-0 and play crap, I don't care. Like, you know, and, and, and this is the thing, and this is where I think the, the problem lies, is that you go and play FIFA, you play it for 10 seasons, Ahmad Diallo is 99 rated and is the best player in the world. So he should be playing every game right now because that's what worked on FIFA. And I think that's part of the problem with this. It moulds into the social pressure. But I also think that, you know, unrealistic video games aid unrealistic expectations which then make people think and you'll see it now there's so many tactical podcasts some are good some are not but at the end of the day that's still an opinion yet the way it's delivered is like it's a godsend and and it's really not in the grand scheme of things because a football match can go one of three ways you can either win lose or draw ben now here's so here's the interesting thing right tony on this show because of our experience and our knowledge God. And, now, and now you're competing with us on stuff we have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you're providing you some, 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 some knowledge and some, I'm some from you now because i've never played these games i have no idea what you're talking about yeah honestly <laughs> i i am i reckon i could be the next manchester united manager with how good i am on football manager but realistically that's never going to go down well on a cv is it but still look each to their own and stuff but i completely agree with you i i just think that 
you know, social media platforms actually are a fantastic thing. And although they do drive some kind of negativity and they are difficult, they've got so many positives that I still think outweigh the negatives. But I think the whole drive around football and pressure and the way it's used and it comes down to um, uh, the, the way that you mentioned the pressure on footballers and, and, and bits and pieces like that. I really believe that that does stem from video games genuinely that's that, that's what i think and it's the same now my uh brother-in-law wants to join up in the army but best of luck to him he was glued to call of duty throughout his whole teenage life and he thinks that's what army life is like and and literally this is part of the problem with the, the generations who are doing it john um i just want to come over to you quickly with a slightly different question to what the guys have just answered i'm just wondering for you how different is um under 23 football um, do you think compared to how the old reserve team football used to be? We've all mentioned here about men playing against men. You know, we know in the old reserve team, if you're coming back from injury, Darren Fletcher will come back from injury and play a couple of games for the reserves with the young lads before going back into the first team. Now with the under 23s, that just doesn't happen. You don't see squad players anymore play play at that level. Do you think that has a hindrance or is that a positive for the, for the young lads? Do you, do you think that's had an impact on the way that players come through? Yeah, I think it's disappointing, really, because I think we, we don't give enough emphasis on players playing for the under-23s. I mean, I was listening to uh, Brian Robson talk recently. Actually, I put it up on my one of my YouTube channels, and he was talking about how he was playing. He had to go and play in... I, I get confused about the names these days because they change the names. I mean, under-23s for me is the reserves, but uh, he was talking about he was playing in a reserve team game. I'm not sure what he'd been classed as because of the, the name, but uh, he, was, he was playing there with... Uh, David Beckham and Paul Scholes and Gary Neville. And his, he was a captain of England and Manchester United. And uh, he was in his 30s. And he's gone down to play in, at this level because he was getting his fitness back. And also, Eric Harrison wanted him to uh, tell him what he thought of the uh, the kids coming through. And he told this great story about... Uh, he, told a sto he told a story about each one in turn, about how uh, he realised, even though they were so young, that they had the maturity that they were already, he knew they were going to be successful because of the way they thought and the way they talked to him. For example, he won a free kick, Robbo won a free kick and uh, he, he fell on the ball and he's picking it up and he's going to take, he's, he's getting ready to put the, the ball down and he hears his voice and it's David Beckham says, I take the free kicks. <laughs> <laughs> but Robbo was saying he, he knew, <clears throat> he already had the confidence, this kid who was probably about 17 and he's, and, and Robbo's like 34, 35 and he's got this kid comes up and he's already got the confidence to sort of, grab hold of the ball and say, I'm taking the free kick. And there was another little story about Paul Scholes. He'd been taken out by this sort of six foot five defender and he's been knocked into the middle of next week. And Robbo is running in to sort of defend him and, you know, have a scrap with the guy. He's saying, are you okay, Scholes? And Scholes says, why wouldn't I be? <laughs> and it was really the attitude. And I think, so what I'm trying to say really is I don't think we do put enough emphasis on the older players playing at that level and helping the younger players. I mean, that's the impression that I get. I mean, maybe I'm out of touch a little bit, but uh, I, mean, I, I missed a long era because I, I spent 27 years covering football for the Sunday Mirror. So, I, you know, from the sort of 80s, 90s uh, to 20, 2010, I didn't really see a lot of youth team and reserve team football. So it's more a case of following it like a fan, really. Uh, so... The other guys would be more knowledgeable in that respect, but I do, I do have the impression that we don't really use those uh, reserve team football, whatever you call it these days, as a. Uh, mm, I don't think yeah. we use it enough. I just, I just think it's, I think it's kind of dismissed, and that's one of the reasons I find it frustrating sometimes. That I think uh, Roy mentioned it earlier that we don't see like why, why does Mason Greenwood still play for the youth team or for when, when we've got these big games, we could still be, we don't seem to give it as much importance as it used to be. It seems, 
it seems that now when you're in the first team squad, you're in the first team squad and you forget about the lower levels. And Duncan Edwards used to be playing in all the different teams from, from what I've read and what I've heard people like Roy talk about. I mean, he'd be playing for the, he'd be playing for the army. He'd be playing for the, the youth team and he'd be playing for the first team or possibly in the same week. And it seems to have changed. It seems to have evolved into something totally different these days. So I feel that we don't, we don't get the full value of some of these lower level, but obviously the whole structure is different. And the other guys, I think would have more, I think Tony's probably more in touch with how it all evolves now from youth team to first team. But I get the impression more from a fan point of view, rather than an expert that we don't really use these lower levels as much as we could be doing. That's just yeah, seems good point. Like. Yeah, it's a good point, John. It's a really good point. I wonder again, you know, you'd use this as a positive and negative, is it fitness? Is it concerns wrapping players in cotton wool? But then what does that tell you about the players back then, how fit they were, that Duncan or a player that would go and play a game every two, three days? Like It's crazy. We're moaning this season that we're playing so much football. Yeah, players would go and do that for youth team football and see it's just as important as the first team football. It's it's it's, it's bonkers. Um, final point, guys. Loads of you in the live chat. Frozen. Should we carry on talking? I think Benjamin, yeah. I was going to say one thing. I, I, I remember Lou, Lou McCarry talking about we, uh, having too many games. Oh. He said if he told uh, Jock Steen you can't play twice in a week, he'd be sold. He'd be bombed out of the club. I mean, nowadays we, we we play two matches a week, and it's it's too much, isn't it? I think uh, football, we, we, the attitude of footballers these days is totally different. But obviously, it's a totally different game. But uh, sorry just about that. Thanks. Thanks, Jock, for <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Thank you for that. I'm sorry. I think what's happening, I mentioned this before. I think every hour my internet likes to connect to a different internet, which is bonkers. <laughs> but anyway, um, one final point, guys, if you're watching this and said like the video, um, get in the live chat. I want to hear one thing from everyone. I want you to just put it in the live chat. We're going to go around to the guys and ask them this question too. And I'm going to start one player that you saw playing the United Academy could be at any level that you was most excited about getting a first team chance. OK, that's something I'm going to hear from all the lads and I'm going to start with mine. And this one's going to be slightly left field. And I'm only going to say this name because actually a tweet popped up from. Let me go back here. Uh, the 6th of May 2014. Can you guys remember any youth team players that might have been coming through in 2014? 2014. So that would have been after Pogba Morrison, Jesse Lingard would have been around about that time. No, he was. It, it, was, it was that time, but it wasn't Lingard. So the person for me now, I I used to go back and watch a lot Rossi. of football. Rossi, not Rossi, no, no, but he's a striker. Mm. I would have thought some along the lines of back in those days, Janazai Pereira would have been around about then. S same team as those guys. The player for me was I went back and watched a lot of England in the nineties uh, and early noughties. and one player that I always loved as a striker was was Michael Owen. Even though he played for the Scousers, I, I thought he was just a tremendous striker. And how he's doing it at such a young age, he just loved his movement off the back of a defender. Whenever he's in front of goal, you expect him to score. For about two, three seasons, watching him in the reserves, that was James Wilson. James Wilson was absolutely fantastic. The way he would score goals and that, that poacher's instinct, but also to nine times out of 10, when he's on the shoulder of the defender, to time that run right, is a phenomenal skill. And he'd done it time after time after time. I loved James Wilson. And I was so eager to see him get in the first team. To which even here, I've got the tweet. 
Look at that. Can you see that? I've always said it. James Wilson equals a young Michael Owen class. I sent that after a reserve game on the 6th of May 2014. I was so excited about him. I thought he was the next. I thought he would play so well with, at that point, Rooney. I thought that the team was made for James Wilson to follow on that next couple of seasons. And he got that injury. And it tragically, um, he never really recovered, I think, after after that knock that he took because he never found that pace. Um, and he always struggled. So slightly left field, but I'm going to say James Wilson just because that triggered me seeing that tweet, seeing that tweet to how excited I was to see him progress. And I think he's at Salford now, isn't he? He's, he's never he's never managed to get back to, to that player. Um, but that's who it is for me. Tony, what about you? Let's come over to you. And again, in the era, it's, com- it's completely up to you. I know it's hard to pick one, but it'd be nice for us to reminisce. Oh, man. that You asked at the beginning and I'm thinking, God, who do I pick? Because, you know, the, the likes of Giggs and Whiteside automatically come come to mind. But the one I'm going to, the one I'm going to pick is one you've mentioned a couple of times, which is Darren Fletcher. I mean, I remember seeing Darren in a youth game back in about 99, 2000. And, and I just thought this kid's got something. And the more I saw him, the more I liked him. And it was, and it wasn't just his ability on the ball. All, all the United youngsters are technically gifted. There was something about him. There was something about his maturity, his professionalism. There was something about Darren that I just thought this kid is special. I, I really hope he makes it. And then when he did eventually reach the first team, and I think you remember there was a story that uh, Fergie wanted to play him as a 15-year-old in a in a yeah. first team game against Villa or somebody, and the mm. football league said no, you can't. And that really even got me even whetted my appetite even more because now I was even more keen for him to get an opportunity. So when Darren hit the first team and and he struggled in the first couple of years, I was delighted, and he turned into what I think being a youth player at Manchester United is all about. I think. If you want one player who who epitomizes what the what the DNA we started the, the show with talking about DNA, I think it's Darren Fletcher. Yeah, fantastic shout. Um let's come to you, John. Yeah, I've already mentioned earlier Norman Whiteside and uh, Mark Hughes, but the other player that I probably remember, I can't give I can't go into the detail that Tony's just gone into, but Sammy McElroy, because my, my boyhood era was Georgie Best and when that uh, Sammy McElroy came. I thought, well, okay, he looks a bit like Georgie Best. And, <laughs> and uh, he quickly got into the first team. So I remember uh, Sammy McElroy was the one that uh, stood out for me as uh, an exciting an exciting moment. And, uh, you know, I've obviously followed his career and got to know him as a person. So uh, Sammy McElroy was one that stands out for me. But uh, in, the, in the current team, I, I've always been quite impressed with Scott McTominay. And... Uh, a lot of fans have said he's not good enough for United. But what I like about Scott McTominay is he's a player that's improving all the time. And uh, for me, it's, that's what part that's what Man United is all about. It's about making the kids better. And they don't all start as being superstars. You're not they're not all going to be a George Best or a Bobby Charlton or a Duncan Edwards. But there are certain players who just get better and better and better. And I think that Scott McTominay is one of those players uh, who's going to get better and better and better. And I think it's got the right personality as well. I think that's all part of it as well. It's not just about being skillful. It's about having the right attitude. I think that's one of the things that Oli talks about, attitude of uh, players. And uh, that's why some players make it and some don't. And, you know, a lot of us were very frustrated with Ravel Morrison because he never, mm. he, he was, you are too many wrong influences, but the opposite of a player like Ravel Morrison for me is Scott McTominay, mm-hmm. who thinks like a footballer who's going to go right to the top. And uh, I think he's a player that will go right to the very top. Good I, I think I think it's interesting you say that as well. I think we're starting to see now that we've put Cavani 
around Greenwood that we're actually starting to see Greenwood do exactly the same. He's starting to get better and you're starting to see parts of his game that he's, he's actually improving. And I think it takes a lot for a player at that age in the first team to show that consistent progress. And I think Scott deserves nothing but credit with, with the journey he's been on. Um, Roy, what about, uh, what about you? One player. Um, I can't. <laughs> Call me two players. I'll give you two players what? if you if you take two minutes to, to, to talk about each one. Coleman, Edwards, Charlton, Georgie Best. Georgie Best is still the greatest footballer I've ever seen. That's in, that's an incredible right. player. He's for the second names. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, you know, the nineteen sixty-four youth cup team was very underrated. Um, but Rimmer, Bobby Noble, a tremendous fullback. Fitzpatrick, Sadler, Willie Anderson, John Aston, who we, we forgot, man of the match in the European Cup final, uh, and Georgie. Uh, that was a great, great side. And George, the greatest footballer I've ever seen. End of. Yeah, great yeah. points well made. Guys, we're going to have to leave it there. We've done well over an hour, but maybe we get this panel back together in a couple of weeks' time and we talk about something a lot more specific so we can have a proper roundtable conversation about a period maybe or, or about a certain player, uh, potentially like we've done with the Manchester Munich Memorial Foundation because it's been great chatting to you all and the insights you provide are massively get appreciated. Go on. Get this book. Anyone who wants is United, sons are United. That is the book. Seriously. Magnificent. There we go. Guys, thank you. Check out Mr. Mujak on Twitter. That's Tony. Check out Don, John Gubba and uh, the, the Red Mancunians, isn't it, John? What, no, the, the Republic of Mancunians. Man United, the religion is my kind of my Man United, the religion cuts across all the social media. Thank Perfect. You. Thank you, John. And Roy Kavanagh. Go and check out Roy MBE on Twitter as well and, and some of his fantastic books as well. And some of the previous shows we've done as well. If you want to learn more about players of the past um, and especially the babes, uh, please go and check that out on our channel. Hit the subscribe button, like this video um, and thank you guys for watching. Thanks again, Tony, John, Roy. Stay safe, guys. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with you, former United Thanks. Academy graduate Daniel Nardiello will be joining me for our Wednesday podcast. Mm -hmm. Guys, take care. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>